Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Paulo Salguero Show. Uh, today, we're supposed to be having a professor from the University of Missouri, uh, Richard uh, Rosenfeld, for our guest, uh, who I believe uh, may be just calling in right now. Uh, so give us one second, and let's see if we can um, get the show started. W-A-R-A? Uh, yeah, this is Richard Rosenfeld. I'm sorry I'm calling in late. I was stuck in traffic. Oh, no worries at all, Professor. I was just, we just did the intro for the uh, show, so this is a, uh, a perfect time. Uh, so like I mentioned earlier, and our listeners know, is that our show is meant to be uh, an educational one, uh, kind of educating the community on topics through uh, interviews with professionals in that field. Um, and we always like to start off with uh, a little bio and kind of experience on the individual. And uh, I kind of put it through social media. Today we'll be uh, discussing uh, the book uh, Crime in the Ameri- in the, and the American Dream uh, that you have um, uh, co-authored. Could you tell us a little bit about, just to start off for some of our listeners, uh, kind of who you are, what your uh, career has uh, kind of been up to, and uh, kind of what you currently do? Sure. Uh, I'm a criminologist. Uh, I, uh, my specialty is studying changes in crime rates over time. Uh, and um, I uh, have a PhD in sociology. I've been teaching at uh, the University of Missouri St. Louis for over 30 years. I'm now emeritus, meaning I continue to do my research, but uh, no longer teach. Wonderful. Um- so the my intro to uh, the crime in the American dream was when I was d- during my grad and uh, graduate uh, courses. Uh, I had a buddy of mine who went to Bridgewater State, and uh, me being the nerd, I always ask uh, my friends kind of what they're using for textbooks. And your book was actually one of his textbooks, so that was kind of um, my my intro to it. Uh, so and I, I fell in love with it. I really loved the theory. I loved everything uh, about your uh, your book and what it uh, kind of was about. Could you tell us a little bit about um, crime in the American dream, kind of what you're and, and kind of what the research uh, entail that you and along with uh, Stephen Misner uh, also uh, kind of did together. Right. Um, well, so Steve Messner uh, and I had been writing and talking uh, for years about uh, the social sources of crime in the United States. And uh, <clears throat> We finally, um, back in the late 80s and early 90s, decided that uh, we would write a book in which we would compile some of our thoughts and the research that we had done and others had done. And so um, let me just back up a step and talk about what criminology is, and then I'll get to the argument in the book. Criminology is the study of uh, lawmaking, law-breaking and the social response to law-breaking, that uh, social response being primarily the police, prosecutors, courts, and corrections. And um, by and large, criminologists uh, study crime at what we call the individual level. Uh, So the question, quite simply, uh, at that level is, uh, why does one individual commit crime but another individual not commit crime? That's quite obviously an important question. What we, however, in this book and in much of our other work, uh, are most interested in uh, is crime as uh, as a group-level or population-level phenomenon. So from that perspective, one asks the question, not why does one individual commit crime and another not, but why are crime rates higher in one nation? than in other nations, or uh, at one time in a nation compared to a previous time, one city as opposed to another city. Uh, That's a different kind of question, and it it requires a different uh, sort of theory and argument to answer. So in Crime and the American Dream, we start with the premise that crime is normal, Uh, There is no society on Earth that is crime-free. Crime rates vary uh, quite substantially, with some uh, some societies having high crime rates, others having low. Uh, Crime rates differ by type of crime. 
uh, violent crime rates, fortunately, tend to be somewhat lower than property crime rates. Property crime being uh, burglary, motor vehicle theft, larceny, violent crimes, including, of course, homicide, uh, uh, serious assaults, uh, robberies. Uh, <clears throat> and so we asked the question in that book, uh, we're writing now in the early 90s when crime rates are escalating in the United States and are quite high, and violent crime rates, homicide in particular, far higher than in other high-income nations. We asked the question, um, to what degree um, is uh, crime, and more specifically the high rate of crime in the United States, normal for a society like ours? That question requires us to look at the type of society we live in. And we live in a society with a culture and a social structure that we argued when, uh, you know, seen together, um, provide um, um, a recipe for high levels of crime, in particular violent crime. Uh, and we locate the cultural sources of crime in one of the American virtues, the American dream. Uh, neither Messner nor I is opposed to the American dream by any means. Um, the American dream, as I'm sure your listeners know, uh, is um, a, a cultural phenomenon that suggests that all people um, should strive for success, uh, that no one, at least on paper, should be denied the opportunity to strive for success, that success is by and large a matter of one's individual ambition, uh, talents, and skills and willingness to work hard, and that we measure the success uh, one has in achieving the American dream by, by and large, uh, in monetary terms, that is, according to the person's material uh, circumstances, so that people who are successful in the United States are people who have uh, uh, achieved high income. And um, that there's nothing in and of itself, we argued, wrong with uh, or undesirable about uh, that cultural ethos. But this strong emphasis on material success, when combined with a social structure uh, and a set of social institutions that... Um, uh, unequally distribute the means, the legitimate means, education, occupation, and other means for achieving success, that combination is a recipe for high levels of crime. Now, to that point, we're, there's nothing original about our argument in the book. Uh, we trace our argument to the great sociologist Robert Merton, uh, and uh, we try to build on Merton's argument. Um, so when we say that the institutions in the United States, when combined with the cultural ethos uh, that places so much emphasis on material success, when we say that those institutions provide a recipe for crime, this is what we mean. Um, um, as a reflection of the strong emphasis on material success in the United States, the economy uh, is, in our view, uh, the dominant social institution. Uh, it's not surprising, given that cultural emphasis on material success. Uh, we don't mean that it's uh, that no other institutions matter, of course, but we mean that uh, when institutions, uh, um, and by institutions in addition to the economy, I mean the family system, uh, the political system, education, and though we don't talk about it a lot in the book, certainly religion as a major institution, those other institutions are to some significant degree subservient to the economy. Uh, examples. We use concrete examples in the book. Uh, if uh, you're at work and a child is sick and home, in other words, you've got uh, a requirement, a family requirement to attend to, 
typically Americans must ask for permission from an employer to return home to care for a sick child. Uh, we organize our schedules around uh, work-related schedules. Uh, and so in many ways, the economy comes to dominate other institutions. And that, in our, uh, in our view, <clears throat> weakens the uh, capacity of other institutions, the family, education system, political system, from uh, exercising their own social controls and social supports that could prevent or reduce crime. Um, the family is arguably the most important institution in that regard. Uh, um, the family and a well socialized, uh, you know, well socialized children are taught not to violate the law. But when the family succumbs to economic pressures, that can weaken families. We use concrete examples there. It, what, it's not too long ago in which families would gather for three meals a day, or certainly two. And now, uh, uh, more recent years, it's less and less frequent that families have the wherewithal to gather even for the dinner hour, given people's differing work schedules. Uh, and as the family is weakened, as its capacity uh, to socialize children is weakened, that uh, can stimulate crime. And the same is true for the education system, and the same is true for the political system. An example of the political system being subservient to the economy is the degree to which uh, economic resources play such a key role in, in our politics. Uh, we're going through a, a presidential nomination uh, process right now, and it's abundantly clear that in order to be successful in that process, one has to attract money, material resources, uh, in order to uh, put forward a viable campaign. So in a number of different ways, what we're arguing is that other institutions that have the function of imposing social control, reducing crime, and providing social support for people, those other institutions are weakened to the degree they're dominated by the economy. And that uh, situation, in combination with this strong emphasis on material success at the cultural level, uh, generates high levels of crime in the United States. So in a, in a nutshell, that's the argument. Interesting. Folks, we are in studio with um, uh, Dr. Uh, Richard Rosenfeld discussing his book, Crime in the American Dream, uh, a little bit of criminology, kind of why uh, kind of groups would commit crime. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to uh, more of a, uh, kind of a couple more questions regarding uh, the theory, and uh, we will continue our conversation. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Paul Sargero Show. Uh, today we are talking with um, uh, Dr. Uh, Richard Rosenfeld out of the University of Missouri, uh, discussing his book, Crime and the American Dream. Uh, Mr. Uh, Rosenfeld, could we talk a little bit about, because uh, it's, it's interesting at this time, too, because we've had so much discussion uh, nationally about it, uh, about the American dream. Is it essentially only relevant to, let's say, uh, like a capitalist society versus maybe a society, you know, like a socialist society? Do, does that play a role in whether or not, um, you know, because we talk about material success and, you know, if we essentially, uh, I, I just feel like there's a difference between those two. Would that play a role in this? Um, yeah, I think it does. Certainly uh, in uh, capitalist societies, and that would account these days for the great majority of developed societies in the world, uh, the emphasis on material success is absolutely key. If people were indifferent to uh, achieving material success, uh, capitalist systems would grind pretty quickly to a halt. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, 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 an ethos like the um, what we call the American dream is not specific to the United States. 
all capitalist societies have to stimulate in their populations uh, um, uh, the desire to uh, achieve material success. But the degree to which they do that can differ across societies. And uh, the um, what really distinguishes one capitalist society from another is the degree to which the population is protected to, to at least some degree from market forces. Uh, and by protected, I'm, what I'm really referring to there is the strength of what we usually call the social safety net. So in some capitalist societies, the Scandinavian societies come immediately to mind. They're just as capitalist as the United States, uh, just, you know, for benefit of... Uh, your listeners, a socialist society is a society in which the government owns and controls the means of production. Uh, well, uh, there are very few societies left on earth in which that is the case. In Scandinavia, just like in the United States, uh, by and large, uh, the private sector uh, uh, owns and controls the means of production. The difference, though, is that in the Scandinavian countries and indeed throughout most of Europe and elsewhere in the world, uh, <clears throat> social welfare provisions, the so-called social safety net, is far stronger than it is in the United States. And to that degree, people are protected from the ups and downs of, uh, of capitalist societies. Capitalist societies as I'm sure comes as no surprise to your listeners, are prone to uh, booms and busts. Uh, and um, in some of those societies, as the economy uh, deteriorates, unemployment rates go up, incomes begin to fall, people are by and large thrown back on themselves, their personal resources, perhaps resources of uh, families, and local communities without uh, the benefit of uh, strong social welfare provisions provided by uh, the society itself. So in societies in which unemployment insurance is adequate and widespread, and with health insurance is uh, adequate and, and widespread, uh, retirement or so-called old age insurance is strong. Uh, you know, there are societies that provide families with uh, paid family leave uh, as a matter of right. Um, in all of those ways, societies with strong social safety nets reduce the dependence of their populations on the ups and downs of the market economy. To that degree, uh, in those societies, the um, crime-stimulating effects of the American dream are somewhat reduced. And we find, as we look across societies, and Steve Mester and I have done research in this area as well as others have, if we look, for example, at homicide rates across societies, homicide rates are far higher in the United States than they are in most of the rest of the developed world, and in particular in societies in Europe and Scandinavia. Right now, our homicide rate in the United States hovers around five homicides per 100,000 population. In Europe, Scandinavia, and indeed elsewhere in the developed world, homicide rates are closer to about one per 100,000. So, yes, it seems to us and the evidence seems to bear out the argument that in societies with a stronger social safety net, and, and in our terms in the American dream in the book, that would mean a political system that has not been uh, vitiated or uh, strongly dominated by the economy. In those societies, we tend to see lower levels of crime. Although, uh, they're just as capitalist as the United States. The difference is in the strength of the social safety net. Interesting. I know you talk a little bit about this uh, towards the end of the book, too. You kind of look at the conservative and liberal um, perspectives and policies. And essentially, it seems as though there's 
you know, the policies that are in place essentially isn't addressing it. And it, this does seem like a complex issue. It seems like there's many moving parts that uh, would have to be addressed. But in your guys' view, moving forward, how, you know, how do we address it, given uh, your theory in, in that regard? And, and how do we address this, the crime rate and just uh, crime in general? If, if we know right. or if we see, you know, the American dream almost being that, that motivator, if you will. Right. Um, well, I said earlier, and I, uh, I should repeat it, that we're not opposed to the American dream per se. What we would like to do uh, with respect to the issue of social reform is broaden the outcomes so that the American dream, while it continues to place emphasis on getting ahead, becoming successful, broadens the meaning of what, it, of what success means beyond uh, simply or primarily material success, monetary success. Uh, and uh, to that degree, uh, were the American dream changed in that way, we do think that it would help to reduce crime uh, and would also provide Americans with a much um, kind of broader and we think richer set of aspirations for what it means to be uh, a, a successful individual in our society. Secondly, uh, going back to my comments about the social safety net, we'd like to see in the United States um, a greater emphasis placed on strengthening uh, the social safety net. Um, and, you know, that's a major topic of conversation right now in American politics. Um, strengthening uh, unemployment, health insurance benefits, uh, providing greater opportunities for individuals to uh, attend college, um, paid family leave, a policy that much of the rest of the developed world has adopted to one degree or another, we'd like to see in the United States. In all of those ways, we'd like to see the United States become the kind of society in which the population is somewhat less vulnerable to, less dependent on the ups and downs of the economy for purposes of, you know, survival and for purposes of living a decent life. Now, we know that's possible because we see it in other societies that are otherwise quite like ours. Uh, we've gone through periods in our own society during, uh, under the Roosevelt administration during the Great Depression of the 1930s, and to a degree during the 1960s and early 1970s. Those have been periods of major social reform in which the social safety net in the United States was, in a sense, uh, knit together. Uh, in the 30s, we got union uh, protections. Uh, we got the Social Security program. In the 60s, we got the Medicare program and a host of anti-poverty uh, initiatives. Um, we've seen some retrenchment <laughs> since the 1960s, certainly in uh, uh, kind of the provision of social welfare in the United States. But to your question of what we're coming to at the end of the book by way of social reform that might reduce crime, those would be the reforms that uh, we, uh, we champion. A broader range of uh, outcomes that would signify success beyond simply material success and a stronger set of social welfare, welfare provisions that would lessen people's dependence on on the ups and downs, the vagaries of of the market. On the conservative side, um, by and large, although we've seen some changes in recent years, but by and large, on the conservative side, crime reduction strategies tend toward <coughs> efforts to enhance punishment. Uh, the United States from the mid-70s through the present has gone undergone just a massive increase in imprisonment rates. It you know, goes under the rubric mass imprisonment or mass incarceration. Our imprisonment rates are the highest in the world, 
And um, <clears throat> there is some evidence that if you lock up a sufficient number of people for uh, you know longer periods of time, you can reduce crime that way, at least in the short run. Uh, you know, the logic there is pretty straightforward. If you're taking people off the street and placing them in prison, they're no longer a danger in any direct sense to the general population. But uh, that's a costly, both in, in monetary terms and also in social terms, that's a very, very costly policy. I don't think any of us would like to see the society turned into a gulag, that is, a society that's dominated by its prison system. And in recent years, as I mentioned, that conservative-liberal split on punishment policy has, um, um, it's not disappeared, but it is, it's become somewhat more interesting. Uh, crime rates have come down in the United States, and we can talk about why over the last few decades. And as the population experiences lower levels of crime, there seems to be a greater willingness, even on the conservative side, to rethink some of the more uh, punitive policies that were put into place uh, in the 80s and 90s that ratcheted up our, our imprisonment rate. Uh, and so we see conservative liberal partnerships now to reduce incarceration, to improve conditions in prisons for the persons who are there. And that's all to the good. And we talk about uh, um, um, prison policy and ways to, uh, in our view, make it both more effective and more humane. Uh, we talk about that in Crime in the American Dream. So <clears throat> there are conservative and liberal takes on uh, ways to reduce crime. Um, right now, when it comes to punishment policy, though, I think we're seeing um, uh, some real progress uh, in the form of agreements between political conservatives and political liberals on what is needed to um, uh, bring down our very, very high rates of incarceration. Folks, we are in studio with Dr. Richard Rosenfeld out of uh, University of Missouri, uh, St. Louis. Uh, we're discussing his book, Crime in the American Dream, a criminology and kind of crime rates in the U.S. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, uh, we have a few more questions, and then we'll maybe talk about kind of the current uh, crime rate uh, decline and, and some of the, the reasons why that has uh, declined. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Paul Sargero Show. Today we are talking with uh, Dr. Richard uh, Rosenfeld out of University of Missouri-St. Louis discussing his book, uh, Crime and the American Dream, Criminology, Crime Rates, uh, and whatnot. A question I had for you, uh, Mr. Rosenfeld, is, I mean, we talk about, uh, you know, the, you know, what, what, what your theory and, and the um, you know, the need for, you know, success, being monetary vows. Were you guys able to find, or is there any research out there that maybe within certain cultures um, that don't necessarily um, kind of put, mo you know, money or monetary, uh, an emphasis on that to be considered successful? Is there research that maybe certain ethnicities don't really, uh, maybe they have a lower crime rate because of that? Hmm. That's a great question. Um <clears throat> There certainly are societies in which the institution of the economy uh, is not as dominant as it is in the United States. And as I mentioned, um, in some of those societies, in many ways quite like ours, we do see lower levels of violent crime in particular. There are, there are societies, excuse me, there are societies in which religion is far more dominant institution than in the United States or, or many other uh, countries. And in those societies, we do see far lower levels of what we were, would regard as street crime here in the United States. Now, um, uh, in some of those cases, one might quarrel with other problems in societies that are so heavily dominated by religion, um, but when it comes to street crime, uh, societies dominated by the religious institution do tend to have lower levels of crime. Now, on this question of are there ethnic groups 
for whom <clears throat> the American dream may not be a salient, or at least it's the emphasis on monetary achievement might might not be as strong. Uh, that you know, that's a great question. I don't I uh, don't know of uh, specific research on that. What I can tell you though is that there it, one looks very very hard to find a significant portion of the U.S. population that is not uh, fully committed to the American dream, individual achievement to uh, attain material success. Um, Black Americans and white Americans do not differ when it comes to a commitment to uh, that cultural ethos. I don't uh, I'm not aware of any significant religious differences across uh, the United States, across Americans, in commitment to the American dream. So I don't see significant ethnic differences in commitment to the American dream, including its its strong emphasis on material success within the United States. We do see differences across societies, societies that have somewhat different institutional configurations, and in societies in which the economy is not as dominant, we tend to see somewhat lower levels of, of the kind of crime uh, that uh, we've been addressing in, uh, in this book. Absolutely. I mean, I guess it does make sense, right? So, I mean, if we think about it, even the immigrants coming to America, typically it's because of that American dream. So it almost... Absolutely. So, I mean, that's probably the crucial role. And I I just wasn't sure if maybe there was an immigrant, you know, um, group that probably came here just because and not necessarily chasing that monetary success. Um, It'd be interesting to see. But um, at any rate, so I wanted to discuss a little bit about uh, the crime rates that we talked about, and you, I knew, you mentioned that right, it has right. has declined, and I always find this interesting because in all in most of my classes, whether it would be uh, they, at the when I was completing my master's or undergrad, we always talked. We always used to open up. I had a professor that would always say, uh, you know you know, do you guys believe crime rate has increased or declined in so many mm-hmm. years? And almost everybody would always say increased. And the biggest idea or concept that everyone always thought was the how the media always played a role. It's like, no, we just see it more often on TV now than, you know, maybe the 60s or even before that. You know what I mean? So could you talk a little bit about <clears throat> yeah. the, the current crime rate, why it's declined, you know, what... Maybe, you know, what's currently going on with our crime rate? Why and um, why it's declined and kind of the, the, the strides, I guess, we've made as a society and kind of the reasons why it's declining? Right. Well, I mentioned our homicide rate, and it's running right at about five per hundred thousand, five homicides per hundred thousand population these days. It wasn't too long ago, well, with, within the memory of, I'm sure, some of your listeners, that uh, our homicide rate was double that. It was up around 10 per 100,000 in the late 80s through the early 90s. <clears throat> Robbery rates have come way, way down, uh, been cut in about half over, over that same period. Burglary rates in the United States have been declining since the 1980s and are far lower than they used to be. Now, part of the decline in burglary is uh, what, in my business, we would call target hardening, Uh, the greater use of alarms, more effective locks, and so forth. So we have experienced uh, a very, very substantial decline in so-called street crime in the United States. Now, I mentioned burglary, and and this same would go... uh, for other property crimes, they've come down quite substantially. But those are the kinds of crimes that involve um, uh, actual or potential contact between a victim and an offender, face-to-face contact. Some property crime certainly has migrated to the Internet within the last decade or so. So we have to be a little bit careful when we talk about declines in property crime in particular, because some of that apparent decline is simply the displacement of crimes from the streets to crime uh, on the Internet. There's no question, though, that violent crime has come way down. Now, why, why is that? 
I mentioned that in the United States in particular, but in many other societies as well, um, the economy is a very dominant institution. And from that premise, it would follow that economic change should have an important consequence for crime rates. People are dependent on the market economy for their livelihood, wherewithal. As the market economy expands, incomes grow, joblessness declines, we should see declines in crime. And indeed, during the 1990s, we we saw uh, the largest, at that point, the largest peacetime expansion in the economy uh, in, in modern history in the United States, and we saw crime rates come down. Now, that period has been punctuated by recessions. We saw a re- recession uh, uh, at the beginning of the current century. We saw a very major recession uh, in 2008. In the recession back uh, in the year 2000, 2001, we did see a spike in crime, but uh, it was relatively short-lived. Interestingly, though, we did not see a spike in crime associated with the major recession the nation experienced in 2008 and 2009. Indeed, what we saw was crime rates declining even further. So one has to ask, why is it that during certain periods of economic retraction, we see crime rates go up, but during other recessions, indeed, we see them going down? What we saw in 2008, ironically, is uh, very similar, though not at the same magnitude, of what we saw during the Great Depression of the 1930s. Uh, crime rates actually peaked in the early 30s, and then as the Depression proceeded, crime rates came down in the United States, uh, as they did um, uh, during the Great Recession of just a few years ago. So what is it about those economic retractions that seems, if anything, to reduce crime? What we saw during the Great Depression was a a substantial rise in unemployment, of course. Uh, But uh, we saw price deflation. That is, we saw um, not only did we see no inflation year after year increase in prices, we saw prices come down. And indeed, uh, in the year 2009, that's what we saw during the economic uh, the most recent economic recession. We saw prices actually fall in 2009. Uh, that hadn't happened in the United States since the early 1950s. So what is it about prices that are not rising steadily or indeed even falling that might have relevance for crime rates? Uh, if you think about the kinds of crimes that people commit in order to acquire material goods or or money, um, those types of crimes really do depend on the perceptions of the people who commit them of what they're likely, uh, you know, what the market is for their activities. You know, people who are out robbing and stealing and committing burglaries are responding to a market. And During periods in which prices are not increasing at a great rate or indeed even falling, um, most people who might otherwise be in the market for stolen goods are more likely to not incur the risks of that kind of activity, receipt of of stolen goods as a crime, um, but uh, do their shopping uh, in, in the normal legitimate retail market. As prices go up, however, uh, sizable segments of the population begin to, as the economists would put it, trade down. So if you had been doing your shopping at Walmart or at Target, maybe now you're more likely to do your shopping more of it at the dollar stores in the neighborhood. And if you've been shopping there, maybe you'll trade down to the Goodwill or Salvation Army outlets where prices are lower still, or maybe even the pawn shops. 
some people under those circumstances become uh, move into the underground, however. They're in the market for stolen goods. That increases the incentives for people who supply those goods to commit more robberies, more burglaries, more thefts, because the market for their services, if you will, is growing. So price inflation, in summary, is a key mechanism by which uh, the economy stimulates crime. And during periods that we're in right now, and we've been in for quite some time, including the recession of 2008-2009, prices have been very, very stable. In 2009, as I mentioned, they actually declined. Under those circumstances, crime rates uh, tend to be somewhat subdued. Interesting. Folks, we are uh, in studio with uh, Dr. Richard Rosenfeld uh, discussing crime in the American dream, uh, crime rates in general, criminology. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, a few more questions I have, and then we will start to uh, wrap our conversation up. Uh, so stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Paul Sargero Show. Uh, we will be here until... Um, uh, five o'clock this afternoon. Uh, today's guest is Dr. Richard Rosenfeld out of University of Missouri, uh, St. Louis. Uh, Mr. Rosenfeld, uh, during that break, I, I was curious about, uh, we've talked about, you know, the monetary success and kind of the needs for material goods. Um, I'm assuming people who, you know, an age group probably plays a factor into this. Uh, is there a, a specific age group um, that uh, accounts for more of, you know, these crimes than, than others? Yeah, uh, in criminology, uh, that phenomenon is referred to as the age crime curve. So for the types of crimes that we've been discussing, um, uh, serious violent crime and serious property crime, uh, rates of crime commission tend to uh, increase uh, during the teenage years, 16, 17, they go up through the early 20s, and then they pretty rapidly decline after that. That seems to be the age group in which that sort of crime uh, is particularly high. Um, now, we've been talking about street crime. We haven't mentioned, though we do discuss it in Crime in the American Dream in the book, so-called white-collar crime, corporate crime, governmental crime. There, the age crime curve is much less likely to uh, uh, be a potent explanation. Um, but for purposes of this discussion, for purposes of understanding street crime, you're right. Uh, the rates of crime commission tend to be, and, and I should say also victimization from crime, tend to increase in the mid-teens, uh, to the early to mid-20s, and then come down after that. Interesting, because, uh, you know, my full-time job, in addition to all the other community things I do, uh, I work in uh, higher-ed admissions. And ah. uh, and so we always talk about how, you know, the, there's been so many studies that, you know, predict that more than 15% uh, of college-age students will drop by, um, you know, after the year 2025. So me always putting on right. my criminal justice hat, I'm always, I'm always interested in thinking, you know, I wonder if the crime rate will even, you know, decrease a significant amount since that a specific age group will be dropping right. soon. It has already. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that uh, the changing age composition of the population is an important contributor to crime rates. So um, you think of after World War II, servicemen returned home, uh, and that ignited uh, what re was referred to as the baby boom, right? And so, especially in 1947, birth rates began to go up, and they continued to increase until the late 1950s, and then they began to flatten. And uh, those kids born during that period, I would be one of them, um, uh, reached their, let's call it their crime-prone years. Uh, in, you know, thinking now of the bursts that began in the late 40s in the mid-1960s. And that's when we saw a major increase in crime in the United States. As that large cohort began to age out of their crime-prone years uh, by uh, 1980 or so, 
we saw some relief in crime rates. Uh, but what, then we saw another spike from the mid-80s through the early 90s, and that spike seems uh, it has to do with a couple of things, but one is uh, the uh, crack cocaine uh, uh, epidemic of the time. Uh, those drug markets were were quite violent, and uh, so during that period, we saw a spike in violent crime in particular. As the crack era subsided by the early 90s and the economy begins to boom, we saw the decline in crime that we talked about earlier. Interesting. Um so, uh, Mr. Roosevelt, I always like to uh, ask our uh, guests to, uh, so I have uh, a couple more questions, and that is just, I always like to mention if you have any future projects you're working on or, f- or current research you're working on, if you always like to uh, mention kind of the, maybe some of the projects you currently mm-hmm. have going. Yeah, uh, let me mention two. One is directly tied to the discussion we've just been having. Steve Messner and I are now doing uh, uh, writing a paper on uh, uh, crime, the American dream, and immigration. And what uh, our basic argument is there is that, uh, and you mentioned this earlier, immigrants come to the United States with a strong desire for material success. That is one of the major attractors of our country uh, to persons uh, from other countries. Now, there are other reasons immigrants come to the United States, of course, to escape persecution, to escape high levels of violent crime in their own countries, uh, for religious freedom. But uh, certainly the desire uh, to achieve economic success is just, uh, I can't think of a more important attraction of the United States to people from other countries. Um, And so immigrants are committed to the American dream. And you might then think, well, gee, given the argument in in our book, you might expect high levels of crime in immigrant populations. But we see just the opposite. In uh, immigrant populations, the foreign-born population in the United States, crime crime rates tend to be lower than crime rates among the non-immigrant segment of the population. In cities that have attracted large numbers of immigrants, we see crime rates go down, not increase. There is uh, just a, a really substantial body of research now documenting that immigrants are not a cause of crime increases in the United States, quite the contrary. But as uh, so, uh, what happens then, though, as the children of those immigrants uh, who are uh, you know, second generation, their crime rates begin to approach those of non-immigrant populations in the United States. So it looks like there's something about that more immediate immigrant experience that uh, deters or prevents crime that might otherwise have occurred, given that strong commitment to the American dream. And that appears to be uh, the group solidarity. There are other ways to put it, but that's one way among newly arrived immigrants to the United States. Immigrants who arrive in the United States typically migrate to communities where there are other strong uh, new immigrant uh, populations. Uh, They typically uh, retain relatively strong family ties, including ties with family members who have not yet or have not Uh, immigrated to the United States. So the family remains strong, local community bonds remain quite strong, and in those ways we think uh, immigrant populations in effect protect themselves from high levels of crime. Um, But in the next generation, the immigrant population begins to look much like the non-immigrant population in the United States. The other thing we're pointing out in this paper is that uh, the American dream is also implicated in the anti-immigrant behavior and rhetoric that uh, we're hearing so much about in this country right now. If you listen to the rhetoric, it most often is reduced to they're going to take my job. They want something for nothing. In other words, they're going to impair my ability to achieve the American dream. Uh, 
that is, that's not the only source of anti-immigrant animus, but it is a very important one. So the American dream, we believe, is tied into the immigrant experience and to that nativist response to immigration in, in relatively complicated ways, and we're trying to work that story out in this paper. That's fascinating. The second, Ooh, go ahead. <laughs> second piece of research that I, I should mention, I'm uh, writing a paper with a colleague named Joel Wallman uh, on the opioid epidemic in the United States and its consequences for homicide rates. Uh, I'm certain your listeners know uh, that the opioid epidemic uh, is indeed an epidemic of you know crisis proportions, has been. Uh, it's accounted for countless thousands of uh, overdose deaths from synthetic opioids like OxyContin and, uh, and then overdose deaths from heroin and, and heroin laced with fentanyl. Um, and uh, fortunately, in my view, it's been framed by policymakers, uh, by and large, as a public health crisis, not as a criminal justice crisis. And that's in stark contrast to the framing of the crack cocaine epidemic of 20 years before, uh, which, at least in its initial years, was centered in the inner-city African-American population. And that one was framed almost exclusively as a criminal justice problem that required uh, great higher levels of uh, arrest and imprisonment as a solution. We're not seeing that with this opioid crisis. Uh, that could be because the opioid crisis has affected uh, all groups in the population, in fact, disproportionately non-Hispanic whites. Uh, and uh, in that sense, maybe uh, the, the policymakers are more open to a non-criminal justice response. It could also be, however, that our drug policy views have evolved uh, over time. Let's hope so. Um, but what we don't hear is about, uh, and what we're writing about, is the consequences for homicide. Um, we hear a lot about drug overdose deaths, but it, as it turns out, in those areas of the country where the opioid epidemic has been most severe, uh, we, we, we see other things equal. We see uh, increases in homicide rates. And uh, the logic is relatively straightforward. The typical sequence for somebody who becomes addicted to opioids is they begin with their own prescription or in, if that runs out or when that runs out uh, and, and prescriptions are harder to come by these days, uh, they might go to family and friends and try to obtain the drug that way. Uh, but when those relatively personal sources of supply dry up, some segment of the opioid-using population hit the streets and move into the street drug markets, and they tend to be relatively risky social spaces, and homicide rates go up as a result. Now, the homicide consequences of the opioid epidemic are not as severe as the homicide rate increases we saw accompanying the crack cocaine epidemic, but they are there. We are finding them, and we thought that was an important piece of the opioid story that hasn't been told, and we're trying to tell it. What we're not arguing, however, is that a result of the elevated homicide rates, we should go back to the lock-em-up uh, strategies of the drug war of 20 to 30 years ago, which I, I would assume your listeners know had little to no effect on crime rates and, in fact, uh, were quite harmful in many ways. Uh, we endorse the public health uh, approach to the degree that people are brought into treatment and treatment is effective. They're less likely to enter into those illicit street drug markets, less likely to become the victim or indeed sometimes the perpetrator of homicide. So that's the other uh, kind of piece of research that I've been working on recently. Fascinating. Dr. Rosenfeld, I'd like to thank you uh, once again for, one, for all the research and work that you do and for coming on our show today. Uh, I'll wrap up with two quick questions because we have to uh, hit, uh, head to our break. But one, we always like to end our show with asking our guests, if you could talk to anyone from history and ask them one question, who would you want to talk to? What would you want to ask them? Oh, man, there are so many. 
Uh, I suppose uh, it would be a tie, but uh, you're asking for just one. I suppose it would be Abraham Lincoln, uh, who had to deal with a divided nation. And I would love to plumb his thinking about um, uh, that division and uh, um, his thoughts about uh, how to overcome it. We live in a divided nation, and, and the current division in, in ways that I think are just absolutely tragic mirror those of more than a century ago, just up to and during the Civil War. So uh, I would want to talk with Lincoln about that. That's a great one. And uh, the last question, if anyone's interested in purchasing any of your books or reading any of your works, uh, how can they do so? Well, uh, purchasing Crime of the American Dream or, or books uh, is easy enough. Uh, just go up on Amazon, and my publisher won't like it. I would obtain a used copy. I think the uh, the new the price for the new copy of Crime of the American Dream is too high. So if you can get a used copy. Uh, assuming it's in good condition. And my other work appears in academic journals, and what I would ask your listeners to do is simply uh, go up on the University of Missouri-St. Louis website, go to the criminology department, look up my name, you'll see the list of articles. If you have any difficulty obtaining one, uh, you'll see my email. Just contact me, and I'll help you get it. Wonderful. And I will also post that on uh, our social media to let our listeners and maybe anyone else on social media um, know and that, that they can get access for it, too. Uh, Dr. Rosenfeld, Very thank good. you so much for uh, taking the time out of your day to, uh, to be on our show. I appreciate it. Thank you. All righty. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, that's, uh, that's going to be it for our interview. Uh, we were going to take a quick, uh, top of the hour break, and we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Paul Soguero Show. Uh, again, I'm going to be here till 5 o'clock. I'm just going to do, I hope you guys enjoyed our interview with uh, Dr. Uh, Richard Rosenfeld uh, from the University of Missouri, St. Louis. Uh, what I'm going to do is on our social media, if you go to the, you know, the Paulo Salguero Show Facebook, I will post um, information related to him on there, whether it be the book or whether it be uh, kind of the, the links to get uh, some of his articles uh, if you guys are interested in reading that, I'll post that for you all. Uh, for the second half of the show, we're just going to take your song dedications and requests. If you guys have any, feel free to call in. 508-222-1320 is the number. Uh, or if there's something going on in the community you want to talk about. Maybe there's, I know it's election season, so if anybody wants to talk politics, feel free. I'm always open to discussing politics with anybody. But we will be playing some music uh, coming up and, uh, and you know, some local news that's going on that's... Uh, both stuff going on in the Portuguese community that I want to let everybody know about, what's going on, and, and whatnot. So I'm going to start off with uh, some Elton John. Here is Tiny Dancer. Elton John, Rocket Man. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Paul Segura Show. Again, we're going to be here till 5 o'clock, bringing you some nice, easy, easy listening music. And, if you, of course, if you have any requests or dedications, feel free to uh, let us know. You can email the show at paulo, P-A-U-L-O, at W-A-R-A radio.com, or feel free to give us a call, 508-222-1320. Again, in the news, I, I told you guys I'll you know, give you a little bit of a news update. Out of North Attleboro, a local woman has admitted to unlawfully collect over $26,000 in public assistance benefits uh, by failing to report all her household income. Michelle Libby, 40 years old, out of 24 Freeman Street, was placed on probation for two years Friday in the Atterboro District Court after agreeing to a statement of facts in her case. Libby had been charged with two counts of felony larceny. Her case was continued without a finding according to court records. Libby was ordered to pay $2,400 in restitution under guidelines of a recent state Supreme Judicial Court ruling regarding a defendant's financial ability. However, if her financial situation changes, she could be ordered to pay up to $26,697. 
Libby received the public assistance benefits from the State Department of Transitional Assistance and Mass Health. She did not accurately report her husband's income when applying for the assistance, according to the court records. Uh, the disposition of the charges was agreed to by lawyers of both sides. As part of the agreement, two related charges were dismissed. The charges were brought by the State Bureau of Special Investigations and prosecuted by Madeline Fairbanks of the Bristol County uh, District Attorney's Financial Crimes Unit. Again, that's out of uh, North Attleboro. Unlawfully collected $26,000, only has to pay uh, $2,400 in restitution under guidelines of a recent state supreme judicial court ruling. Um, again, folks, one thing I wanted to mention, if you guys follow me on social media or follow any of the current uh, workings I do, uh, at St. Vincent de Paul Church here in Attleboro, um, at one point during uh, last summer, uh, Portuguese Mass was taking away uh, at the church. Now, Portuguese Mass... Uh, for those of you who don't know that do not know, uh, here in Attleboro, we do have a, a Holy Ghost festival that used to take place every year uh, since you know the the early 70s. Um, the Portuguese American Club is also puts on some, certain events, but through that um, that feast last uh, last year, last summer, the Portuguese Mass was taken away. Therefore, uh, the community kind of didn't want to do their feast. However, uh, once I found out about it recently, I, I kind of dedicated. Uh, a good amount of time of trying to work with uh, the local bishop out of the Fall River Diocese and other community members. Uh, we were told if we collected 50 signatures, which we did, we collected more than 50, uh, that they would, quote, experiment with bringing uh, the Portuguese Mass back. And if the numbers held up, uh, they would uh, continue it. So uh, we have been told after the signatures and after waiting uh, a good amount of time, that on March 8th, Sunday, Portuguese Mass will return for community members. Uh, so if you know any friends or family uh, that speak Portuguese and would like to see a Portuguese uh, Mass at the St. Vincent de Paul Church, uh, March 8th at 9 a.m., will, that will be the first day it's back. It's really important that we have a lot of people show up um, continuously. Uh, again, it, it, you don't have to be uh, Portuguese to attend the Mass. I mean, if you enjoy our, the festival... And, uh, you know, that Portuguese food during the feast, uh, it'd be great to see your support there as well. Uh, we worked hard as a community, and we were dedicated for it. And, uh, you know, the Portuguese community uh, has done a lot for that church, and I, I, think, that, I think it brings a lot of uh, cultural value uh, to the city as well throughout uh, through the feasts and whatnot that, that we put on. So, uh, again, that's March 8th. It's going to be at 9 a.m., so if anyone uh, would like to uh, show support for it, uh, it'd be greatly appreciated to, to swing by. Uh, it's a 9 a.m. that will be the first mass just to show uh, how strong our community is here in Attleboro um, and respectful towards um, other cultures and ethnicities. Uh, again, we're going to take uh, our uh, quick break. We'll come back with some more music, some easy listening. If you have any requests, feel free to call in 508-222-1320. That's Mark Hahn, uh, Walking in Memphis, a great song, a nice easy listening to. Uh, again, ladies and gentlemen, Pulse Girl Show here. We will be here until 5 o'clock in that last half hour or so, just uh, doing some uh, uh, housekeeping, if you will, some news with you guys, and then we'll uh, call it a day, and we'll be back at it again next week. Uh, out of Norton, Massachusetts, the case against a local businessman charged with allowing underage individuals to drink in his parking lot during the Xfinity Center concerts was continued without a finding for six months Friday, this past Friday. Stephen R. Bankert, 62 years old, the owner of Norton Mini Golf and Ice Cream on Route 140, admitted in Attleboro District Court that there was enough evidence to find him guilty had the case gone to trial, but he disputed the allegations. He offered, uh, had offered to have the case continued for one year without a finding, but Judge Edmund Mathers reduced the deposition to six months, according to court records. Uh, Prosecutor Henry Souza recommended a guilty finding of $200 fine. Burkett of 52, uh, 42 Pratt Lane, North Attleboro, was charged with uh, furnishing alcohol to minors, uh, a misdemeanor, in 2018 following an investigation by police. His lawyers had argued that police were misapplying the law, but police and prosecutors contended that Burkert knew underage individuals were drinking on his property. If Burkert avoids any other criminal charges for six months, the case will be dismissed. 
He has more serious legal woes in Worcester County Superior Court, where he is awaiting sentencing for failing to file state income tax returns for six years. He is scheduled to be sentenced March 10th, according to court records. Uh, In addition, he is seeking a new trial for his 2017 conviction for... uh, for bilking uh, Columbia Gas and NSTAR out of about $200,000 by tampering with gas service meters, he was sentenced to a year in jail, followed by four years of probation in addition to paying an as yet undetermined amount of restitution. However, the sentence uh, was stayed pending his appeal. Uh, so that's quite the character <laughs> out of... Uh, uh, again, I think he's out of uh, North Attleboro, but the case that it happened was in Norton. Um, underage drinking case against Norton business owner continued out finding. That's out of the Sun Chronicle. Ladies and gentlemen, that was another story out of the Sun Chronicle. We are going to uh, kick it back to one of my favorite artists, uh, Billy Joel, as you guys know. Uh, he's actually going to be performing at the... Um, at Fenway Park this summer. I think it's August 28th he is performing um, at Fenway Park. I'm going to try and get to it. Uh, believe it or not, I have never been to a concert. I've been to like festivals, Portuguese festivals and stuff like that, but the feasts, but I've never been to a Portuguese concert, uh, a regular concert, if you will. Uh, so here's uh, You May Be Right by Billy Joel. As Billy Joel, scenes from an Italian restaurant. Continuing on with our news updates, of course, four Attleboro area communities going and getting green. Governor Charlie Baker's administration on Friday announced that another 31 Massachusetts cities and towns have joined the ranks of green communities, and four in the Sun Chronicle area are on the list. Attleboro, North Attleboro, Rehoboth, and Norfolk. Uh, have earned uh, dis- uh, designation uh, distinction with uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in grants coming down the pike. Attleboro is embar- uh, embarked to receive $244,370. North Attleboro, $187,820. Rehoboth, $148,380. And Norfolk's $144,600. And they will be eligible for additional funds over the coming years. Now, green communities have committed to clean energy goals to reduce energy uh, consumption and lower emissions and are now eligible for grants totaling uh, $5 million, the governor's office said. The steps the communities have taken include adopting a more energy-efficient building code and developing a five-year plan that calls for reducing energy consumption uh, by 20%, which saves money besides helping the environment. The goal of the program is to support community investments in energy efficiency and renewable energy uh, projects. Uh, Initial grants are based on a 125,000 base plus additional amounts tied to per capita income and population. A total of 271 of the state's cities and towns, 84% of its population are now considered green communities, including Plainville and Seekonk. The Department of Energy's Resources Green Communities Program can provide up to $20 million annually to qualified cities and towns. Since the program began, it's awarded over $123 million in grants. Quote, the Green Communities Program is instrumental in, ho- in helping municipalities take action at the local level to protect the environment and reduce greenhouse gas emissions, Charlie Baker said in a news release. So that's great to see Attleboro. Uh, again, it's Attleboro, North Attleboro, Rehoboth, and Norfolk that are receiving these uh, grants for uh, clean energy. Uh, so that's, again, that, that's another article out of the Sun Chronicle. Continuing on our music, we're going to go a little old school on you guys with a little Frank Sinatra. Here's my funny valentine. It's Frank Sinatra, my funny Valentine. I think everyone knows, uh, uh, follows me or has known me. I'm a big Sinatra, Billy Joel fan, and kind of the old school uh, music. So I figured since we're down to the last 10 minutes, we're going to stick with some Sinatra, play some of my favorite uh, songs that um, he has played. So here's another little classic one I'm sure many of you know. It's uh, uh, Come Fly With Me. Ladies and gentlemen, there's Fly Me to the Moon. This is a song that's going to lead us out of our show and Oscar the Cat Rocks up next. Thank you again, and we'll be back at it again next week, folks.